Turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to extend my thanks to Reverend Jeff Ferguson, who filled in for me last week as Hannah and I got away uh, on a baby moon. If you don't know what a baby moon is, that's basically when you check in with your wife, make sure everything's going to be okay before the next baby comes. Make sure we're all on the same page and uh, doing okay, and good news we are. God's been really good to us, very faithful, loving, and kind. And um, as we uh, are getting close to the due date in the middle of November, we had a great baby shower, and Hannah was blessed by that. So thank you all the ladies that really served her and blessed her yesterday. That was really sweet. Again, we're in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. We also have the sermon notes of 1 Samuel and, and 2 Samuel that you can grab. There should be a copy or two left on the main table in the narthex. When we run out, though, we can buy more, so please grab those if you would like. So chapter 2 in 1 Samuel, remember this, this is, uh, begins with a family. This story in 1 Samuel begins with this, this family with a, the, the husband Elkanah and, and his wives, uh, Penina and Hannah. And this, so this small family, and we, we, we learn of uh, Hannah's struggle, that she's barren. She, she has no children, but Penina, her rival, has many children. And, um, and she's in distress. She's distraught. And she goes to the temple, prays to the Lord, and we know that the Lord provides uh, Samuel to her. And so she's then offered Samuel to the temple, to the temple service, this Nazarite vow, to serve all his days there. And so now we get this prayer, this, this really a song of exultation, of, of joy, and rejoicing what the Lord has done. So if you would please stand for the reading of God's word. We'll read through verse 11. This is God's holy word. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken. But the feeble bind on strength, and those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah 
And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, bless us as we read your word this morning, as we hear it, and as it comes into our ears, would it produce faith in our hearts as we look and long for this King, Jesus, who has come and once, but he's coming again. And so we thank you for your word, Father, would it um, reach deep into our hearts and change us. Holy Spirit, be with us. Do a mighty work in your people, in Jesus' name, amen. I want to take uh, a second to just to make two introductory comments before we jump into this song of Hannah. Remember Hannah's former suffering. Right, remember the state that she was in as she came into the temple that day, distraught, sad, and over this tragic situation. Remember, to be a woman in Israel at this point, first of all, as a woman, you don't really have much social standing at all, and then to be barren is a real tragedy because then you're not, you, there is shame then that sets in on your, your life because you have not borne a child to your husband. So she is suffering. She is messy as she, as she comes into the temple and recall Eli and his response to her. And he sees her. He, what does he assume? That she's drunk. That she's drunk. And so one quick point just of application to us as a church is are we ready, are we ready to accept messy people into the church? Are we okay with that? Eli's words, how long will you go on being drunk, are indicative of a spirit that, you can, that can find a home often in the church. It's a spirit of arrogance that immediately seeks to put others in a box, a category, that then you can sort of cast them aside because they're that type of person. Hannah was in a difficult, sad, and tragic situation, and she had nothing left except the beating heart of, of prayer. And so at the moment where that priest, Eli, should have been compassionate and caring, he instead writes her off as a worthless woman. When actually we'll see in coming chapters, it's his own sons that are worthless, the worthless characters. So brothers and sisters, how willing are we to care for messy people, broken people. People often do not come to the church who have their lives put together, nor should we expect them to. Recall your own journey to faith in Christ. How, how put together were you when Jesus met you? Don't we all come to the cross out of desperation and need? In fact, if you came to Christ in any other way, for instance, maybe just to check the religion box. Yep, I went to church today. I'm a, I'm a Christian. You came to him wrongly if you came that way. We first and foremost must hear the gospel, not as good advice or a good way to live your life, but as good news. Good news of the forgiveness of sins, of righteousness of Jesus credited to your account. If the gospel is not that, you've come to the gospel wrongly before we can even think about living a good and righteous life and thankful response to grace we must see it as good news for messy lives 
That's what the gospel is. Are we good ambassadors? Let's ask that question. Are we good ambassadors of that news to messy people? Because as Hannah learned, and as a, a, a child's children's song we often hear and sing in our house, God makes messy things beautiful when you put it in his hands. So are we good ambassadors of that? Let's, let's keep that in mind as we think about the abuses that were happening in the temple during this day. Second word of introduction as we jump into this, that this is a divine word. It's interesting. We have a few places in Scripture where we get divine words of God in the, in the words of a woman, not a man. You know, we often think of the Bible as God's words through man's lips, but this is actually an interesting section where we get a woman speaking, a woman's song, a woman's prayer. And you know, we're a, a complementarian church, so we, we affirm the leadership, the headship of men in homes and, and churches. And men are called to be, and men alone are called to be pastors and elders, but do not think that God is hesitant to use women to bless his church. This morning we're considering God's infallible word spoken through the lips of a godly woman. So bar, far be it from us to think that women are less valuable than men. Sometimes that's what the world thinks of believers. This text itself shows us that even though God uses men more often than not to speak as his mouthpiece, he can and will use faithful women to speak his truth and model righteous prayers for the whole church to benefit forever. And especially in light of men who are priests and who are leading and who are failing. So he shows this this woman, this, this humble woman coming before the Lord in prayer. And in fact, this text is, is a prototype. It's really uh, what pe- people have said, a prototype for Mary's own prayer in Luke chapter 1 that we read in the Gospels, the Magnificat. So godly women have always played an important role in God's church, Old Testament and New Testament. And even more so, this song in chapter 2 becomes a table of content, so to speak, a roadmap of the book of Samuel. It, it strings along certain themes that we'll see play out again and again in the book of Samuel, First and Second Samuel. And really her song is communicating this, that her song of exaltation points us to the greatness of God in His rule over all things and the goodness of God in His care and His provision for His people which he ultimately takes care of us when he is victorious with his king. So we're going to look at three points in this song, and and it goes like this. God is great, that's the first theme we'll see, and then God is good, and then God will win. God is great, God is good, God God will win. As I was making those points, it, it reminded me of the prayer. I used to pray growing up, God is great, God is good. Let us thank him for this food. Maybe we should change that. God will win. Let's add that to our children's prayers. Well, first, God is great. Let's look at the first verse of chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. Just a word on this two word. Exalt is really the word meaning to rejoice. I rejoice. My heart rejoices in the Lord, and my horn is exalted in the Lord. Exalt and exalt. One letter difference, but the change of word, exalt, meaning lift up. So her horn is, is lifted up. This horn resembling victory in battle is lifted up in the Lord. 
So she's talking about her joy in her salvation. And what was her salvation at that moment? Having a child and putting Penina's uh, words to rest. This rival of hers. But notice, as we jump into this, how God-centered her prayer is. I mean, look at verse 1 again. Who is she giving credit to? My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. She calls her own salvation your salvation, talking to God. This is a praise of thanksgiving. We're teaching our children at home in prayer. We're trying to teach them that our prayers aren't just what we ask God, but we should pray to thank God, to extol Him, to adore Him. And this song is full of adoration for God, and it is God-centered as well. She's giving Him the credit for the work that He has done. And a theme that I keep kind of coming back to in these, in these verses, especially verses 1 through 8, is the transcendence of God. He is over. He is bigger than all creation. I don't know if there's many people here who are Star Trek fans, but uh, you know Captain Kirk was the captain of the ship. I honestly don't know. I, I watched a little bit of Star Trek. Maybe you guys watched more than me. Probably so. Um, but uh, uh, his name, uh, the, the actor's name is William Shatner. He's now 90 years old, if you can believe that. But he recently went to space, like literally actually went to space. Uh, I don't know if you've heard, but people with a lot of money, billionaires are starting to go into space and do space travel, at least go around the, the earth once or twice, go into orbit. And so he, he wrote about his experience, what it was finally like at 90 years old to go into space, really go into space for the first time, and to, to leave our atmosphere. And so he writes about this, and um, he, he mentioned how amazing it was when you know, they took off, he's pushed back, he feels the G-forces pulling on his body, and it increases and increases, and then as they, just as they leave the gravity field, it all goes away, all those G-forces just disappear. And he looked as, as they were unstrapping and starting to float around the cockpit. He looked back and he could see earth and he could see the hole that they, they punched through the atmosphere, which is pretty amazing. I didn't know you could see that. And then it fills back up. And so he's talking about this. He's looking back at earth. And then, this is surprising when I was reading this, he continued, he says, I continued my self-guided tour and I turned my head to face the other direction. To stare into space. I love the mystery of the universe, he says. I love all the questions that have come to us over the thousands of years of exploration and hypotheses. Stars exploding years ago. Their light traveling to us years later. Black holes absorbing energy. Satellites showing us entire galaxies in areas thought to be devoid of matter entirely. All of that thrilled me for years but when I looked in the opposite direction, into space, there was no mystery, no majestic awe to behold. All I saw was death. I saw a cold, dark, black emptiness. It was unlike any blackness that you could see or feel on earth. It was deep, enveloping, all-encompassing. I turned back toward the light of home, and I could see the curvature of earth 
the beige of the desert, the white of the clouds, and the blue of the sky. It was life, nurturing, sustaining life, Mother Earth. And I was leaving her. I learned later that I was not alone in this feeling. It's called the overview effect. And it's not uncommon among astronauts, including Michael Collins and Sally Ride and many others. Essentially, when someone travels to space and views Earth from orbit, a sense of the planet's fragility takes hold in an ineffable, instinctive manner. We have one... Now, he's talking about, at this part, comparing us to animals, and he says, we have one gift that other species perhaps do not. We are aware, not only of our insignificance, but the grandeur around us that makes us insignificant. I thought that was interesting. I've never heard that from somebody who actually went into space, that when they looked out and they compared Earth to, the, to space, all they saw was death and darkness. And as he looked back toward home, that was life. That's where he wanted to be back. And so what, what he's talking about, when he says insignificant, he's saying, I felt small. When you, when you see that, you feel, you feel very frail, don't you? We are small. And God is big. I wish he had said that, but maybe he's thinking that God is big. That we will die apart from the world we were created to live in. And so it's transcendent. When we talk about God being transcendent, what we're saying is, as the dictionary says, existing apart from and not subject to the limitations of the material universe. God is apart. He is different. He is other. He doesn't need the universe, like he doesn't need the earth to live in like we do. Like we need oxygen to live. We need warmth and light to live. But in a sense, God is oxygen. He is warmth and light and life. He's transcendent over all things. But also, in her song, she mentions his power. Look at verse 8. He raises up the poor. Go down to the last section of verse 8. For the pillars of the earth are, on the, are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. That God is the creator of the earth. He, he has set the earth on its axis and spinning it, and he has created it all. He is that powerful. But it also goes to his knowledge. Look at verse 3. The Lord is a God of knowledge. And by him, actions are weighed. He knows everything. He knows the past perfectly. He knows the present. He knows the future. And isn't that a comfort? Isn't it a comfort to know that God knows more than us? He knows more than you and I. That he knows the outcome of our struggles and the days that lie ahead for us. God knows it all. Have you thought about it like this? Why do we experience calm when we go to the beach and we look at the crashing waves on the shore and we see the vastness of the ocean, how big it is, how immense the the coastline is, or when we sit at home on a summer night and we see the darkness set in and the rain and the wind of a summer storm roll in, or when we travel west like Hannah and I just did, and we see the rolling hills turn into the Blue Ridge Mountains, and then beyond that, the Alleghenies in West Virginia, why does that give us a sense of calm and peace? I'd argue that it's because we know, all people know, 
that our Creator is behind it all. Our Creator is behind all that work, and He knows way more, infinitely more, than we ever could. And there's something hardwired in us that wants to receive that, wants to receive our limitations and know that He is greater than it all. And, sh- and Hannah, uh, she, she says in verse 2, there is none holy like the Lord. This, this all of thinking about how big God is turns her mind to the fact that He is holy, which means set apart, other, sinless. There's none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There is no rock like our God. She is praising the Lord because He is transcendent. He's bigger than all her problems. And we will all one day be accountable to Him. End of verse 3 says, For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. Everything will be weighed in the balance because He is the Creator of all things. And I probably don't have to take much convincing you to that we are not transcendent. I'm not transcendent, but we're all limited as humans. We are not um, unlimited in power. We're often very weak, aren't we? We're not unlimited in knowledge, but we're forgetful. And one of the, the really difficulties of the internet age that we're living in right now, we have access to the internet everywhere we go, on our phones, computers, Our internet age is telling us this, that we need to be everything, everywhere, all at once. We need to be knowing about every news story, right? Everything that's happening in the financial markets, everything that's happening in politics. We need to be learning about that, hearing about it, nonstop. We need to be knowing about everywhere, right? What's happening in Ukraine, what's happening in China, what's happening in Africa. And we have that ability now with the internet And we have to do it all at once. It's demanding to be heard right now, all at once, to take you away from the fact that you're limited. But it's as if God is saying in response, don't be everything, everywhere, all at once. Be someone, somewhere, throughout your whole life. You are limited. You are someone. You, You can't be everything. You're a human. Be somewhere, Right? Be, be at a location. Be, be at your house. Be with your family. If you're a, a father, spend time with your kids. Get away from your phone. Get away from your, the internet. Be a father. If you're a spouse, a, a wife, spend time with the people that are in your life. Be in the place God's called you to. There's a reason why mental health is at an all-time high, right? That it's at an all-time low right now. Because we are driving ourselves crazy trying to be everything, everywhere, all at once. We are not transcendent, and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You know, in the Bible, often we hear us described as sheep. Isn't that a good way to explain us, that we're sheep? Sheep are not very smart. I'm not very smart. Sheep are limited in what they can do. What they can do is follow. If, you, if, if they have a leader, they can follow, and that's what we're called to do. And we're not holy, certainly not holy. This should, this should be obvious. We confess this truth every Sunday, that we are not holy and that we have, we have to have forgiveness. We confess our sins. We need to do that. And all of this should cause us to fear God, have a good fear of God, that He is everything that we're not. 
So God is great. That's the first great theme of Hannah's song. But secondly, God is good. Secondly, God is good. God's greatness without his goodness would be awful. If God was just great, but not good, not caring about his his creation, not wanting to be in covenant with them or love them, he would be unapproachable. He, if he was just holy and transcendent, how could, we ever, how could we ever know him, truly? It would be awful. But he is good. Go back to the very first verse of her song. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. If you think about what Hannah just went through, it's hard not to have Penina in view in verse, for verses 1 through 3. Her rival, her tormentor, said, you don't have children, laughing at her, mocking her. Verses 1 through 3, look again at verse 3. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by Him actions are weighed. It's hard not to think about. She's talking about her, her salvation that God gave her with a child. And Penina being that, that enemy at a time in her life. And as we walk through verses 1 through 10, what's interesting, so if you think of verses 1 through 3 as, as Hannah's own personal salvation that she enjoyed, she begins to expand that out to the macro salvation that God provides, verses 4 and following, of how God works usually. The, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread. Those who were hungry have ceased to hunger the barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. What she's saying is that the weak become strong in God's kingdom, and the strong become weak. That it's not by might that we are to experience victory. And in 6 through 8, verses 6 through 8, we see who's doing all of this, switching around of fates and fortunes. It's the Lord himself. Look at verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. How about a statement of God's sovereignty there? He kills. The Lord kills. Anytime someone has died, it's the Lord's doing. Anytime someone is brought to life or a new life is, is brought, it's, it's His doing. Verse 7 and 8, the Lord makes poor, makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. It's the Lord doing all these things. And so, instead of transcendence, we begin to see God at work in His creation. And that's called imminence. If the opposite of transcendence is imminence. Imminence is defined as existing or operating within, inherent, permanently pervading and sustaining the universe. That God is intimately involved in his creation. But for God's people, it's even better than that. Verse 9 says, He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked will be cut off in darkness. He'll guard the feet of his faithful ones, that God is for his people. One of my favorite catechism questions is Heidelberg question and answer number one. And in that answer it says, what, you know, what is your only hope 
in life and in death. And part of that answer is that he, God, washes over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. And that's a reference to when Jesus says that God numbers all of your hairs on your head. He knows you that well. He knows his people that well, that God is near to his people. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. Verse 9, that word faithful ones comes from the word hesed, meaning covenant faithfulness, that God is steadfast in his love toward his people. He's pledged his covenant love on his people. He will never reject you in Christ because of his love. Dale Ralph Davis, a commentator, writes that the saving help that Yahweh gave Hannah is a foretaste, a scale model demonstration of how Yahweh will do it when he does it in grand style. What he's saying is this was a minor, micro salvation for Hannah, but what it does is it, it, it points us to a greater salvation to come. He says this again, every time God lifts you out of a miry bog, and sets your feet upon a rock. It's a sample of the coming of the kingdom of God, a down payment of the full deliverance and the salvation that, that will be yours at last. So think in your life to those, those, those things that maybe seem small that God has done for you, or big, lifted you out of a, of a miry bog, helped you. That is a, a taste, a foretaste of the great salvation we have. In the king he's provided. Dale Ralph Davis gives the example of a wedding band. Right? The wedding band for a married couple is this symbol of love and um, covenant faithfulness between a husband and a wife. It's a, it's a symbol of my love for my wife and, and hers to mine. And, but it's not the actual love itself. I could, I could lose this ring, which I actually lost my first one. This is my second one. I know some guys who are on their fourth or fifth. But if I, I could lose this ring, I'm still married to Hannah. I'm still married to her. So it points to a greater reality of our marriage, of our love. But it also doesn't mean that I'm just, I just throw it around and, and try to lose it and don't care for it or throw it in the trash. No. I still have regard for it. And in the same way, think of those micro-salvations in your life. What God has done, they have deep meaning. They're a symbol. Right? They point forward to the ultimate salvation you have in Christ. But they're meant to be told. They're meant to be cherished and not to be discarded. And that points us to our final idea that God will win. Verses 9 and 10 is what we'll focus on. That God will win over his foes, over the mighty. You've noticed in the song that there is an enemy that God is going to be victorious over, that he is against, right? He is against those who are mighty in their own strength, who are arrogant, who are proud, who set themselves up as adversaries against him. Look at verse 9. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, Against them, he will thunder in heaven. So his victory is going to be over the mighty. There is a force in the world that is in rebellion against this great and good God of the universe. 
And that force, that rebellion is actually inside each one of us from birth. And, and we who have been born again in Christ wage war against that rebellious sin nature every day. Where many in the world today are enslaved to this rebellion, believers in Christ are not enslaved. We're no longer, that's no longer our master. But we're not also totally free from it either. But we have to wage war. We have to put on our armor and battle against our own sin every day. The tendency in our hearts to want to be our own God. That's that force that Scripture talks about. This rebellion, though, is also very present in our society at large. We are warned not to follow, as Ephesians 2 says, the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. So that exists in us and in the world outside of us. And that is the force that God is going to crush in the end, that that desire to be mighty, to be arrogant against the Lord. And so if we're going to receive salvation, it cannot be by might, right? It can't be by our own strength. It has to be by the Lord's strength. One commentator says that Hannah learned that in the battles of life, it's not physical strength that brings victory. In 1 Samuel 16, we're going to read about a little shepherd boy named David who defeats Goliath. And in defeating him says, victory does not come by sword or spear, but the battle belongs to the Lord as he's talking to Goliath. That is a constant theme we'll see in the book of Samuel. And it's a theme we see in the New Testament as well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12 that Jesus said to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast, Paul says, all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me for the sake of Christ. I I am content with weakness, insults and hardship and persecutions and calamity, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Our weakness, brothers and sisters, our weakness in Christ is actually strength because it's His power, not ours, that's on display. So God's kingdom economy will not be ruled by the mighty, but by the meek. Again, in verse 4, she says, Hannah says, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. And we learn ultimately This victory will will come through a king. Look at the end of verse 10. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. That this will be done through a coming king. The people haven't even asked for a king yet, but she's already prophesying this king is coming. That God's going to work through this king. First, it's the earthly king's Saul and David and Solomon and so on, but it points ultimately to the great king, Jesus, who became strong through weakness. I want to close by uh, turning us to Luke chapter 1 as we look at Mary's song, Magnificat. So Luke 1, verses 46 through 55, if you would, you could turn there with me. Luke 1, beginning in verse 46. This is Mary's words. And look at the echoes. Look at the uh, uh, comparison 
with what Hannah has already said. Luke 1, verse 46, Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Right? She's saying it magnifies and rejoices. These are the same words for exalt. Right? That she is exulting in the Lord. She is praising and rejoicing in what the Lord has done. And before we continue with that, remember her own situation. Both Mary and Hannah were mothers of miraculous birth, really. A working of the Lord. But a birth brought about by the Lord, it's a rejoicing of this mother. Where we see also strength and holiness and might of the Lord is proclaimed in her song, look at verse 49. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. Right? Emphasis on God's holy holiness. But also an emphasis on God's mercy. Look at verse 50. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He's shown strength as his arms, scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts that we're called to have humility as God's people in comparison to the arrogant and the pride of the godless. The promise of Hannah's coming king is fulfilled in Mary's joy. Right? Hannah has this promised coming king. Mary has the fulfillment of that king in her womb. And so who is this Jesus? Jesus Christ who came not to be served but to serve. He came in humility which made way for his exaltation. And he prepares us for our glory, which will be received upon his return. You see, in Jesus, God's greatness and his goodness meet perfectly. He is both great, awesome in power, Lord of the universe, but he's also good and compassionate, putting on our humanity and dying the death we deserved and being raised to new life. So what should we do? In closing, what should we do? We should be like Hannah and Mary, waiting patiently, receiving God's word humbly, doing his word in submission to our king. That's our marching orders as we await the return of our king. And we do it also by crying out in despair when things are hard and in thanksgiving when he lifts up our head. So thank the Lord for Hannah's song and for Mary's fulfillment of that song as well, as we both with them look and long for the coming and return of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this testimony of your salvation, that we have been given a king who, rules, who ruled not by might when he first came. And so we are to model that in humility following him where he takes us and leads us as he rules and reigns even now, but who will rule in might and empower fully when he returns. So come, Lord Jesus, comes quickly and can help us, Holy Spirit, to abide in you and to trust you, to follow you, follow you where you will lead us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.